I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi. Yes, two of the three yearly folks are back. Well, actually, Matt Rock never went away, but uh, Murat Verdi has uh, come back and become a yearly sponsor once again, and huge thanks to him. That's a, a huge help for the show. The show could use some more name sponsors. You can do that at thejazzsession.com slash join, but you can, of course, join at any level, and it's very helpful. This is episode 394 for August 9th, 2012. Today's guest is Jeff Coffin. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel for the show's logo and Rob Grendel for the Jazz or Bust logo. So here's the thing. I was expecting, in fact, I already recorded an intro to this show once telling you that I was in State College, Pennsylvania, and uh, for uh, a variety of reasons, uh, sadly out of my control, I'm no longer there and am now back in New York for a few weeks. However, I was not planning to be in New York for a few weeks, and so I've got a place to stay uh, this week, but starting August 13th, I I need some place to stay until about the 30th. It could be a variety of places, uh, but uh, if you have uh, any place you might like to put me up in, uh, you know, let me know, Jason at thejazzsession.com. And then, of course, the uh, tour starts again Labor Day weekend in Detroit at the Detroit Jazz Festival, and then I'll be going through... Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, then out west from there. Uh, so if you'd like to give me a, a couch to sleep on or suggest someone to interview in one of those states or suggest a place to read poetry, really anywhere from Michigan west, you can, again, contact me at jason at thejazzsession.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can, of course, read tour diaries at jasoncrane.org and see all the shows at thejazzsession.com. The show needs some more members, which you can do at thejazzsession.com slash join, or you can make a one-time donation in support of the tour at thejazzsession.com slash tour, and there are thank you gifts for that. This is the first of a half dozen shows from Nashville. This is with Jeff Coffin. You may know Jeff from a variety of places. He, of course, leads his own band, The Moutet. He also plays in the Dave Matthews Band. Uh, you may know him from Bella Fleck and the Flecktones. The Moutet is on tour in August. They start tomorrow, actually, August 10th, if you're listening to this in real time, at Blues Alley in Washington, D.C. They'll be there the 10th, 11th, and 12th. And then they're on to uh, Cleveland, Ohio, Evanston, Illinois, Murray, Utah, American Fork, Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah, Huntsville, Utah, and St. Louis, Missouri, all happening, uh, coming up over the next couple of weeks. So please do visit uh, jeffcoffin.com slash calendar for all of those tour dates. Jeff's got a new album with his band, The Moutet, coming out September 4th as well. We'll hear music from Jeff Coffin and The Moutet, and then my conversation recorded at Jeff's home in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you. 
My guest is uh, saxophonist Jeff Coffin. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here at your home, man. Thanks so much for having me here. Sure. Thanks for coming over. My pleasure. You have an incredible amount on the horizon, but one thing I want to talk about is the brand new Mutet record that's coming out. And it's very rare that I do interviews with people about records I have not actually heard. So mm-hmm. you're going to have to give me a little easy walkthrough on this because I haven't listened to it, which almost never happens on this show. Mm-hmm. But will you tell me something about the new? Uh, the new sure. Record? It's um, myself, uh, Felix Pastorius on bass, Jeff Sipe on drums, um, Bill Fanning on trumpet, Kofi Burbridge on piano, keyboards, and flute. And we have uh, Lionel Luique on a couple of tracks also. Oh, fantastic. Uh, the great uh, guitarist um, from Benin, Africa, who plays a lot with Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter. Of course, a lot of his own stuff as well. And I'll just uh, mention that he's been on this show, so if folks want to go in the archives, right. they can find him there. Yeah, he's uh, he's brilliant. Uh, really interesting uh, vocabulary. Um, and the record is... is uh, um, there were a lot of co-writes on it. You know, I, I had a lot of material, but I've been on the road so much that... There wasn't a lot of time to, to really finish a lot of material. So I brought down Felix um, at a certain point before the studio recording. And uh, uh, he and I have written some together in the past. And, and I feel that we have a, a really good, um, obviously personal and, and professional relationship, but, but a writing re- relationship as well. So we uh, kind of went through and, and worked on a bunch of stuff and got it to a point where I felt, you know, we could bring it in and kind of suss it out from there and and the rest of the stuff uh we worked on once we got into the studio and kind of brought it to life from that point and so it was a real collaborative it was the it's the most collaborative record i've ever done and how did that uh i'm interested in how that maybe changed your perception of the finished product or how it even changed going into the studio where not every piece of it was out of your mm-hmm. own brain and you were kind of dealing with another person's thoughts on almost an equal yeah footing. um well, I've always wanted to do more collaborative writing. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted the group to be more involved. But the difficulty with that is that not everybody lives here. And so getting everybody together to work on stuff is, is difficult enough if we've got gigs, never mind taking the time to actually have the luxury of time. And uh, so that's that's sort of a, a difficult perspective. Um, as far as how it changed it, it, it definitely changed a number of things. Um, harmonically, uh, in particular, um, you know, when, when you get a keyboard player that's, and Felix plays great keyboards also, but when you get him and Felix working together, I'm sorry, Felix and Kofi working together, then you sort of have this, this very high level of harmonic sophistication that's going on. So it changes, um, what's going on underneath these melodies. I'm more of a melody guy, uh, playing a single note instrument, a uh, single line instrument. I tend to gravitate towards more strong melodies, whereas these guys bringing in a stronger harmonic approach to it really changes the depth of the music um, uh, in a really interesting way to me. And, and talk about the impact on that mm. of that on you as an improviser, for example, and where that I mean that obviously that changes what's what's under you. It changes what's going to go over top. Of sure, um, going from uh, a simpler harmony to a more complex harmony sort of gives us more opportunity as improvisers to kind of wheel our way through it, you know, different different turns. And, and um, it's like visually I'm, I'm seeing almost like these geometric motions to it. So it's like you may have a curve, you may have a, a point, um, maybe a hexagon and maybe this and maybe that. It, it, just different jumping off points. And so the the movement of the harmony, the way that it relates to itself, um, it, there's more geometry to it. I guess that's sort of the best way I could put it. There's more geometry to it. Earlier today, you told me that in four of the last five years, you were on the road 300 days a year. Mm-hmm. And do you try to carve out some space for composition in that? Is it even possible to do that? Um, it's possible. Uh, it usually happens though when I'm home. You know, it, it usually happens in those moments that there's a lot of silence. And every time I write a tune, I wonder if it's going to be my last tune. And it never is, you know, thankfully. Um, but it just kind of pours out. Like, I, I may I may sit at the piano and two or three tunes start pouring out at the same time. Um, 
I was just I was just writing yesterday actually in in the uh, um, in the tuning room uh, while I was out with Dave. Um, just a snippet of an idea, and I, it's you know it it'll become another tune for sure. Um, but usually when they fall out, they fall out rather quickly. It's not like I'll take a long time working on something. I, I mean, I, over the course of time, yes. But usually the initial idea, the gestation of it, falls out rather quickly. Did you make that comment about wondering if it'll be your last tune because you just never know that that moment is going to come again where it, where it pours out? I just don't know where it comes from. Mm. You know, so, so I don't know... Um, You know, I don't know if it's something that stays with you or if it goes away. You know, it's it's like I remember um, there was a documentary on on Van Gogh, and towards the end of his life, he said that it was it was leaving him, that his ability to create and to paint was leaving him, and he was terrified. And uh, um, so I don't know. I I don't know what the muse is. I don't know where it comes from, or what it represents. I remember I talked to Van Morrison one time. And because I had just started writing and uh, um, I was doing a, a big band gig with him in Montreux and I asked him about his writing process and he kind of points up to the sky and he said, I'm just, he says, it just comes through me. I'm just the medium for it. And uh, he says, I know nothing about songwriting. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> great. I'll Thanks. Right on it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I understand part of that too. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to sort of know where it comes from. And, uh, and, and again, what it represents and, and sort of what it is that I'm supposed to learn from that process also. You also spend, uh, I'm sure I will have done this in the introduction to this show, but just to make clear that folks know what else you do, the reason you're on the road 300 days is because you are a member of the Dave Matthews Band and you are also a member of Bella Flex Band in addition to the, the Mutet. But So you spend a lot of your time in the presence of very strong writers and people who have a very mm-hmm. clear musical vision. And I wonder if it's ever a challenge when you then come home and you get a chance to be in the silence to separate yourself from the very strong musical vision that you spend your your nights being a part of. Yeah. Um, I would like to point out also that one of the, another one of the reasons that I'm out so much is I do a lot of clinics also. Sure. And uh, I'm very heavily involved with the education scene, which also takes me out quite a bit. Um, but, yeah, you know, I, I don't think that the way that I write – um, really has a, it has a lot to do with the people I play with, but I don't think that, for example, Bela and I write in a similar way. I don't think that, um, Dave and I write in a similar way. I don't think that myself and Future Man or myself and Vic write in a similar way. So I, I think, uh, but I do know that there's those influences. There's those circles that are, uh, overlapping. Um, and it's certainly influenced my ability to write. Um, you know, I don't, when I'm writing with, for the mutet, or just writing a tune, I'm not thinking, oh, I'm going to write a tune in seven or 13 or whatever it may be. It just comes out that way. So the natural inclination of how I play has everything to do with how I write. Um, when I finally write it out and I try to put that down on paper, then I figure out that it's in 
a strange time signature and or an odd time signature rather than saying strange it's an odd time signature um, other than four four other than three four and so it just it just naturally occurs that way but I think that having played with musicians that deal a lot with odd tempos uh, in particular the flectones and even some stuff with Dave you know there's there's a tune in seven there's um, there's a tune in five that you you know you would never Rapunzel is in five, you know, and I remember years ago, like trying to figure out, just going, what are they doing? And uh, because what Carter is bringing to it is this very poly polyrhythmic approach. So these different approaches, these ostinato figures, um, um, repetition of a particular line, and then adding something over the top of it, um, all these different things influence, very much influence my ability to write because I've had to work on those aspects of it. So when I'm backed into a corner, I kind of go, here's a few ideas on how to get out of this corner. Let's see which one appeals to me for this particular tune. And uh, and I find a lot of times also that if I'm writing, I'll sort of improvise over it, and I'll, I'll pull out these little, little seeds out of that improvisation and tweak that a little bit, and that a lot of times becomes the melody. The idea that, that composition is improvisation slowed down sure, and vice versa. You know, I like that idea. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in whether you can remember a moment uh, in your early days when either the sound of the saxophone or the sound of improvised music hit you in a way that made you know it was going to be something you were really going to pursue. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, I also remember that early on, uh, even before I started playing the saxophone, that I was really drawn to vocal music. Mm. And vocal music, like vocal soul music, people like Aretha and Otis Redding, Marvin Gaye, um, some of the even earlier um, kind of R&B uh, soul stuff, stuff that really had um, a particular emotion to it. And so when I started playing the saxophone, um, I remember trying to emulate that stuff. Uh, you know, I would hear songs that, that had saxophone solos and there were certain things in there that I was really attracted to but it was more to me about the emotion of what the vocalist was able to provide in certain turns in the saxophone also um, but I, I never wanted to I never remember wanting to sound exactly like somebody I always loved the emotion of it but I never thought oh I want to sound exactly like that person but but I do remember a particular aesthetic experience that I had uh, listening to Coltrane's solo on Bye Bye Blackbird. And uh, um, it, w it really hit me. I mean, it was a very particular time period for me. And it hit me in a way that I just kind of went, wow, I've never felt this before. And uh, um, But I had heard a lot of music up until that point. But there was something about that solo, something about the place that I was in. Um, and it just it hit me like a ton of bricks. And it sort of, I don't know if that necessarily opened up a certain place, but probably. Sort of like you step through the door you can't really go back through and so there's been there's been many moments like that um, you know with Ornette and obviously you know with Train, Sonny, uh, Wayne Shorter, uh, Albert Eiler I mean the list goes on and on and on of course and it's not just with instrumental music it's it's you know it's like when I do clinics I, I, I ask the students 
I started asking this a couple years ago, how many people have ever had goosebumps listening to music? I was figuring 30, maybe 40%. Every hand went up. And it freaked me out. And I told him, I said, I'm getting goosebumps because of this, <laughs> right. you know? I said, I had no idea it was this widespread. But it, the thing that was important about that to realize is that it's, it's not all the same style or the same piece of music, but that it's a common experience. It's a shared experience that we all have. Um, so for me, it wasn't just instrumental music. You know, I, I could hear a song and, and, you know, get, you know, when I had hair, it would stand up <laughs> and uh, get goosebumps and, and just feel this thing. And I just, just beside myself. And uh, sometimes playing also, I would get that feeling. And, and uh, um, it's again, it's difficult to know where that comes from or what it is or, um, you know, what we're tapping into or tuning into. But it's, it's magical. great to hear you say that. Uh, on this show, very often we talk about the idea of engaging with the listeners. And particularly, you know, most of the folks who are on this show are jazz musicians and are always dealing with the kind of fear that people have about the music and the feeling that there's so much learning that has to happen before you can even start listening to it. Mm. And how do we break down those barriers? And the only effective means anyone has ever suggested that I've heard, at least, is to have some sort of emotional connection with the audience, whether it's through the story you tell them actually verbally about the thing you're about to play mm -hmm. or the story you tell them with the music and it sounds like that's what appeals to you about yeah performance as well I, I think so i mean i think that we're all trying to connect well i mean i can't say as 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 a rule but i, I think that uh it would certainly have to be a, a rare exception that people who are in the arts are not trying to connect with other people you know i'm, I'm not saying that everybody wants to be famous or that everybody has a need to sort of participate publicly in a lot of things. Um, it was Emily Dickinson, like, wasn't, wasn't it her that, like, like, none of her poetry was published during her lifetime. And uh, so I think that that's happening all, all over the place. It's always happened. She wanted it thrown out, actually, as I remember. Same, yeah. same with Kafka, wanted all that stuff burned well, and right. somebody and, and, saved and, it. And, yeah. and, and thankfully that, that stuff didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. But I understand also, but it's not like, there's something that's that is trying to connect in those people, whether it's to the universe or whether it's to themselves, whatever it is. It's it's these relationships that are going on all the time, and it's just it's a fascinating process. It's a very spiritual process. Um, uh, I would say spiritual rather than religious. Um, they're they're very different to me. I mean, I wonder though about about the position that all art. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll get myself in trouble saying this. The idea that all artists are trying to connect, just based on all of the music that I go to see in New York or mm -hmm. did before I was out on this tour, and I say this all the time, that there are very few of those performances that connect with me emotionally. Now, right. Some of that is on me. But I think there's a, I think there's a real push toward kind of technical fluency mm -hmm. and... You know, when you're playing in rooms full of music school students who come to the gigs in New York, I think it's right. a very different vibe. Absolutely. And I think there's a, it's a bit of an exclusionary vibe, which is actually why I really like people who do try to kind of force mm -hmm. their way through that and connect with the other people who are in the room or just right. say it's about more than just executing this well. Right. Well, I, I would definitely agree. And I, and I would say that I've, <laughs> um, I, I would share those feelings, you know, or I do share those feelings that you're having. It's, it's not, it has, look, it has nothing to do with technique. You know, you listen to, to Lead Belly or Mississippi John Hurt or John Lee Hooker. Um, 
you know, or Miles play one note. And it's like, that's, that's what we're trying to get to, I think. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I think that it has, people wonder why the music that is under the, the blanket umbrella of the word jazz, which is a whole other conversation, I think. Um, I, so let's say improvisatory music, instrumental improvisatory music, that uh, it, it has become exclus- uh, ex- exclusionary. And I, I don't really know why. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to exclude anybody. I'm trying to draw people in. I'm trying to go, man, you know, be part of this experience with us. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I hear. And I just go, wow, okay, you know, I've heard it, but I've heard it better. And I've heard it in a way like like people that talk about Ornette Coleman. I remember never hearing Ornette Coleman when I was in college, which is a travesty. And uh, I never heard anybody talking about him, or if they did, they, you know, they sort of sort of wrote him off in a way. And then when I when I started listening to him, I didn't understand what was going on. But then I remember the day that I got it. I was driving to a gig. I was here in Nashville. And I was on my way to a gig, and I swear to you, man, I almost drove off the road. And uh, I had been listening to this cassette tape for a while, and then suddenly I went, oh, my God. And, uh, and I remember I got to the gig, and I told somebody, and, and I was like, man, I said, I got it. I, got, I was listening to Ornette, and I got it. I got it. And they, they were like, oh, that's great. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm going to tell somebody else. <laughs> but, but the thing about that music to me is that I hear it like field haulers. You know, I under, I understand having lived in the South now for, for over 20 years, you know, almost 26 years of my life. Um, uh, I hear his music in a different way because of that experience of living here and of, of hearing this music, all the Alan Lomax recordings and, um, you know, the different, the different sort of stylings that come from the vernacular of, of living in the South. It's, uh, it's fascinating to me. And, and, these people weren't schooled musicians. Um, they're educated musicians, but they're not academically schooled musicians necessarily. Uh, even people like Dewey Redmond. I mean, you just have to listen to it in a different way than than if you're listening to sort of someone that's coming out of academia. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that I just listen to, and I just go, okay, well, I sort of understand from a harmonic and a rhythmic and a technical place of virtuosity but i'm not moved like i'm not going to listen to this ever again and it's not because i don't want to it's just that i there's no goosebumps and if there's no goosebumps i'm not coming back so there's got to be something there that that moves me in a way um that draws me back in one person who i love is daphnis prieto i think he's an absolutely brilliant composer and a brilliant drummer, and uh, um, uh, he just won the MacArthur Genius Grant was this last year, I think it was, and and I just thought, absolutely, man, absolutely, and and I listened to his compositions, and I'm I'm blown away, absolutely blown away, and uh, I think he's I think he's a genius, man, I really do. And he's also a a guy who, when he talks about music, actually very seldom in conversations about music is talking about the technical side of whatever mm-hmm. the musical problem is he's talking about. And he's talking about the kind of holistic hmm. picture. And that's how it sounds, too. Yeah. You know, it sounds like he really understands where it's coming from. It's the inside out rather than the outside in. And uh, and, and I don't I don't always hear that so much. Um, I'm not saying that there's nobody out there doing it, of course, because there are. Sure. Um, you know, I think there's many people that are out there doing it. Um, but I, I don't always hear it from certain players that I sort of hope that I'm going to hear it from. Will you talk to me then about how, having said all of that, how you communicate that goosebump idea to the people in the clinics that you do? How do you, how do you deal with that side of the music beyond just the technical aspects of performance? Through encouraging them to improvise. A lot of times, you know, usually when I run a clinic, um, the first thing I'll do is I'll play for them. And I'll play for 15 or 20 minutes. I'll just do solo stuff, uh, which there are certain concepts, ideas, um, techniques that, that I know that I'm going to use. The rest of it I have no idea. 
But uh, I know that there's certain articulation things. I'm going to take the horn apart and play it. Uh, there's certain things that that I do that, like I know that when you take the neck off the tenor and you blow, um, it's an E concert. So I'll use that as part of, it's not a gimmick, but it's sort of part of a technique to sort of bring them in, like like to shatter their perspective of what the saxophone can do. Um, I'll do double horn stuff. I'll do a lot of very inside, but a lot of very sort of avant-garde techniques also. Um, tapping of the keys. So basically, I'm, I'm, I'm showing them that you can really experiment, and there's a lot more sound than maybe you thought before this particular demonstration. Um, and we start talking about it. Rather than me standing up there and, and saying, this is what you should work on, any questions about me, I say, what did you hear? And that's where we start. And eventually, by the end, they know that everything that I'm doing has come out of working on fundamentals and uh, and that I still work on fundamentals and they should be working on fundamentals also but but playing also looking at it like um, it's a big sandbox and we have a whole lot of toys that we can choose from and so you can play with the dump truck you know and the ladder at the same time if you want or whatever combination of things that um, that you want to try, there's basically no rules. And so that you have an opportunity to experiment. And, and I've had many, many occasions of having young players improvise for the first time. And I just asked them to do it. And I think that for whatever reason, they trust me. And uh, first of all, I think they know that I'm not going to judge them. And that when we talk about it, I say, look, you know, this is, this is the safest place. You know, you have 20, 25 people around you who are going to support you, who are going to lift you up, who are going to encourage you. And I was telling them, I said, you don't have to do it in the concert if you don't want to. I said, but what safer place will there ever be for you to take an improvisational solo? And, uh, and, and it's been almost miraculous, man, the stuff that's happened. And, uh, I mean, people, you know, you see these young players, man, they, they come out of their shells and, and, and they just go, Oh my God, I can really do this. And, uh, um, and it's at, it's at all ages. And, and what I think ends up happening is that there are a few people that, that are usually bold enough to try it. And they usually get better because they understand the experience and they go, Oh, I love this. I'm going to do more of this. So they eventually get better. The people who haven't done it by the sophomore, junior year of high school, they're like, man, they sound pretty good. There's no way <laughs> in hell that I'm going to try this. Um, it's a process. Yeah. You know, we talked a little earlier you know, about the, the idea, you know, leap and the net will appear. And, and I think it's really important, man. You've got you've to be willing to jump sometimes. And, uh, um, you know, I, there was a keyboard player out in uh, California. These two girls were playing keyboards in the high school band. And, um, you know, I was asking, you know, okay, who wants to solo on this tune? Just, you know, like some blues kinds of thing. Easy, easy stuff. And... Uh, so at one point, like after a bunch of people had improvised, the next time we ran through the tune, I said, okay, who wants to play this time that didn't play last time? And I saw the girls look at each other. I said, I said, you want to play, don't you? And then she was like, uh, if she plays, I'll play. I said, come on. You know, she just threw down the gauntlet. You got to say yes to that. And, uh, so they played and, 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 and one girl sounded pretty good. You know, she had some really interesting stuff. And, and the second girl who played sounded like Sun Ra. I, it freaked me out, man. I mean, the stu she, she was doing all this two-handed stuff also. And and I'm standing next to the director, and I turned to him, and his mouth is agape, and he's just looking at her. <laughs> and I said, man, I said, his, I said, really? I said, she's never improvised? And he's just, like, shaking his head. He's like, I can't believe this, man. And after the concert, they both improvised that night. And they said, you know, we're going to tell the director we want to improvise on every tune. You know, and I hugged them, and I just said, that's it. I said, you guys get it. You know, so so... Coming back to your question about how do you instill that into somebody, you allow them to have a, a, an experience. You encourage them to have an experience. I don't ever tell a student no. I'm always like, come on, bring it. I don't care what you play. Play from the heart. Give me the heart rather than the head. You know, And for me, that's how I've always approached music. And it's worked out pretty well, I think.
And it seems like it is essentially reconnecting. I mean, everyone knows how to improvise. Everyone does sure. it in conversation. Everyone does it when they first mm-hmm. pick up their instrument, when they have no technical ability. And then in many ways, I think it gets trained out of them. And it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is is kind of reconnecting people to the idea that it's okay to to do something other than just what's on the page. It's okay to remember what it was like to first sit at a piano right. or first pick up a saxophone. Well, a lot of people don't know what the word where the word improvisation comes from either. It's it's a Latin root of improvisio, which literally translates as unexpected or surprise. So it has nothing to do with music. You know, it has to do with the spirit behind the word. Um, education also. That's another word I I, I looked up because I was interested in. It means to lead funny. out, right? Well, it means to draw out. To draw out. Yeah, yeah. educato means to draw out, and so it's it's the idea of discovery. You know, it's the idea of being curious and, and of, of of encouraging that in people, not just young people, but everybody. You know, we a lot of times, you know, we're done with college and and we sort of stop learning. And uh, man, I don't want that ever to happen to me. Um, I don't want it to ever happen to anybody. Um, you know, we should continue to be curious. And I think that, that once we have an idea of how we want something to be, um, we sort of put parameters on other people that are trying to learn the craft or trying to create. And we're like, well, no, don't do it like that. Do it like this. Let me show you how to do it. Rather than saying, hey, man, keep it up. You'll figure it out. Let me know if I can help you or guide you. But draw it out. Discover it. You know, be curious. And, uh, and, and what I find with these students, um, even getting the bands, uh, like getting a full big band or a small group, um, to, to really play differently. I get them singing their parts a lot of times. And we laugh. Oh my God, it's so funny sometimes. And, uh, because they're very timid at first, uh, unless they've done it before. I'll be like, well, that's how it sounds like when you play it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds terrible. Now sing it for me, you know, and I'll sing it with them, and 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 it's fun. I don't I don't berate them. I just laugh with them, and uh, um, and the transformation is is absolutely incredible, and they understand that also. They hear it, they feel it, and they and, and a lot of times after tune it, you know, I'll see somebody like wipe their brow or something. I say, oh, I said, so finally you broke a sweat, you know. I said you should be active in this process. And when they're active in the process, they're involved, man. They are like really focused in, and uh, uh, so I think you have to give them the opportunity to be who they are, you know, to express themselves and to encourage uh, young players, um, and and players of really of any age, but in particular young players, um, to validate their experience, um, to be an advocate for them also, and saying, look, man, I, I don't care what you give me. Just give me some heart. You know, come to me from there and we can work on the other stuff. Mm-hmm. But give me some emotion. You're full of emotion. Show me that. Bring it out, you know? And, uh, and next thing you know, man, they're playing their butts off. Are you, are you paying forward some positive music education experience you had when Absolutely. you were younger? Absolutely. Tell me about that. Um, well, I first started playing in, uh, in Maine in a small town right in the middle of Maine called Dexter, Maine. And my director, he was the one director for the entire district. And, uh, um, it was, you know, it wasn't a ton of people, but he was doing everything. And he played every instrument. He, he was primarily a piano player. He would play saxophone. He taught the saxophone players, taught the trumpet players, taught the trombone players, taught the drummers, taught the bass and the guitar players, you know. And, uh, I mean, we're still in very close contact. He, uh, uh he has ALS now. And, uh, he's played his last gig, man. It's terrible. And, uh, but he's still very positive and he's always learning and, and like he's, you know, learning this machine now so he can com- com- uh, communicate. And, uh, we were just on video chat the other day. He'd never video chatted before. And, uh, um, so he's still learning. You know, he's still this very positive role model in my life. Um, when I moved to New Hampshire, I had a, a um, another great saxophone, uh, instructor as my high school band director who was always very concerned with us playing musically. And so we had to do marching band and it's cold in New Hampshire, you know, and, and you get instruments like flutes and clarinets and saxophones. They sound terrible in the cold. So he moved everybody to a brass instrument. So I played sousaphone for three years in high school in marching band. <laughs> and, uh, and I loved it. It was a whole different experience for me. Um, but the whole idea was that he wanted to be as musical as possible. So this idea of things being musical, being musical all the time, 
and uh, I had uh, great teachers in college also, and and uh, um, great mentors around me. Um, Dave Pietro, who you probably know from New York, um, is family to me. You know, I've I've known him since we were in high school, and we went to music camp together, and, and so he's always really been um, someone that I've not only looked up to, um, but he's helped in my development also as a musician. You know, having somebody like that to talk uh, about to, about sound um, or about harmonic concept or about articulation or this, that, or the other thing. And, and uh, um, he's a very methodical um, player. He's uh, full-time at NYU now also, and, and they're so lucky to have him. He's brilliant, you know, and a brilliant writer and arranger and and uh, um, so I've had a lot of great teachers and, and a lot of great people around me also. And, and I do. I, I try to encourage that in other players also. And, and uh, um, we're on the porch with two of them right now, Jim Williamson, who runs the National Jazz Orchestra, and Evan Cobb, a wonderful saxophonist. And, and they're both great writers and arrangers. And, uh, you know, I try to be as an encouraging and, and um, welcoming of, of what people are doing um, because I think it means something to them also. I know it means something to me. And uh, it doesn't mean that I'm going to stop if somebody doesn't do it, but I want them to know that somebody's paying attention. And, uh, you know, whether it makes a difference or not, I don't know, but I want them to know that someone's paying attention and uh, that it's important to me that people are out there writing music and, and um, trying uh, um, to bring out an original voice and an original concept. Um, and I just think it's, again, this idea of being an advocate, um, at, at whatever bracket, you know, whatever age level, whatever, um, level of proficiency, you know, whether it's a kid that's, you know, picking up a little flute in kindergarten and tweeting around on it, or, you know, someone that's been doing it for 40 or 50 years. I want to ask you uh, a couple more things. One is to to just recount a little bit of something you told me in the car, because I, uh, although I'm going to go there tomorrow, I have a feeling that a fair number of people will listen to this show because they'll know you. Mm. And so I wondered if you to say a few words about the W.O. Smith School, which seems mm. like an amazing place. It's an incredible place. Um, W.O. Smith was the original bass player on Coleman Hawkins' Body and Soul, and he started a community music school here uh, in the late 80s, which has now um, grown... Um, Exponentially, it's it's got over 600 kids a week coming through. Uh, originally, uh, uh, when W.O. started the school, uh, it was 50 cents a lesson, and it's still 50 cents a lesson. It's a responsibility um, more than a payment, and it's all low-income kids. Uh, it's an all-volunteer faculty. It's like 200 over 200 people, I think, volunteer each week at this school, and it used to be in one house. And every room would be filled, you know, by what, like four or five rooms in a house. And a few years ago, uh, Jonah Rabinowitz, the second uh, director of it, uh, they bought a 20,000 square foot tire warehouse um, and converted it 
into one of the most incredible places I've ever been into. And uh, um, the education that these kids are getting is not only musical, but it's about life and about uh, working hard to keep your grades up and community. Um, they have a sense of belonging there that it's theirs, you know, I mean, they come through it. And from real early on all the way through, these kids are um, making music and creating and learning and forming these mentorships and relationships with other kids. Um, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's it's an absolute jewel in this town. Yeah. And, uh, I, I mean, I really can't say enough about it. Thank you. Uh, I think I have two more things to ask you. Uh, part of the reason that I'm doing this tour is to go and find people where they are. And mm -hmm. although you're probably a, a bit of an exceptional case given how much time you spend on the road, you've made your home in Nashville for a long time. And mm -hmm. so I thought maybe you could say a few words about what makes this town a special place to be a musician and why you've chosen to live here. I can sit on my deck and I can hear that train whistle. Everybody loves the sound of the train I in the distance. The the <laughs> <laughs> um, when I moved to Nashville, uh, first of all, I didn't know anything about Nashville. Um, when I got done at North Texas, I was driving uh, back to New England. And there was a friend of mine that was living here. And it was about a 10 or 12-hour drive from where I was. So I had three different points that I was stopping here, D.C., and then Massachusetts. Um, and that was um, summer or fall of 1990. Uh, and one of the things about Nashville for me is that it re reminded me a lot of New England. And I knew I needed to move somewhere. Um, everybody I knew in New York was dark. I just thought, I just, I just really don't want to get into that. Um, I thought about San Francisco to study with Joe Henderson. I had talked to him, and he said, he said, I'll take you as a student. He says, but you have to realize that I have to leave town to work. And uh, Let me just stop here for one second. Sure. Just to be 100% clear on the slight piece of slang that you just used, you mean dark in the sense of grim or kind of uh, yeah, facing just the future in a grim way? Yeah, um, just sort of brooding... Um, I don't want to say angry because it's not an angry kind of thing. It's just like it's not a real positive energy. Yeah, Evan earlier today used the adjective eori, which I kind of Eeyore. I kind of yeah, enjoyed. Yeah. That happens sometimes too. Uh, but Eeyore sort of gave up. Yeah, that's, you know, it's that's true. It's like it's it, when when I sort of use the the term dark. You know, it's it's just. I mean, New York is especially at that time. You know. Every, look, everybody's jockeying for position in New York, physically, business-wise. It's a hard city, and, uh, um, and and there's a lot of beautiful things about it. And, you know, I, I think that it's changed a lot also in the last 20, 25 years. Um, but at that period, you know, the, 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 the few people that I knew up there, they were really struggling, man. It was really hard, and I just thought, wow, I just don't, I don't know if I can take that. Um, I had just spent a bunch of time in school, and I just needed to sort of exhale. And so, again, Nashville reminded me a lot of New England. Uh, you know, you can still get out of the city within 20 minutes and be, I mean, I'm in my backyard surrounded by trees and tree frogs and crickets and whatever else. Um, and I'm only five miles from the city, from the center of the city. Um, you go a few more miles out, and, you know, it's very remote. And so, you know, I, I considered uh, um, moving here. I considered New York, San Francisco. Um, uh, I almost went into the Navy. Uh, I was a syllable away from accepting accepting the job. Wow. Uh, which is a whole other story. Um, uh, so I was on a cruise ship for a couple of months and uh, paid off all my school bills and decided I was going to move to Nashville. Uh, I was able to get really cheap rent. Uh, we had the, uh, this friend of mine and I had the top of a house. It was like 200 bucks each a month. Um, it's a very livable city. There's incredible musicians here. Um, uh, there's not the live scene of, say, in New York um, um, or even like a Seattle. But it's different. You know, I mean, the, the, the slant is a little different here. And there's obviously a lot of country music that goes on here. But there's a lot of other stuff going on, too. And, and uh, um you know, the recession really never hit Nashville, maybe for nine or ten months. But, man, you know, houses really haven't declined in value at all. Um, more people seem to be moving here all the time. I think just a couple of days ago, it's like, 
um, business-wise, like Nashville is the top city in the country right now for growth. And uh, um, so, I, I, you know, it's been good. I've been here for 21 years. I don't remember what the question was, but I keep talking enough. about Nashville. <laughs> the question was about Nashville, so you're close All right enough. then, perfect. Perfect. Uh, so I'm going to ask you the final question, but before I do that, I just want to—I haven't asked you a single question about either the Flectones or the Dave Matthews Band, and I'm mm. not going to, uh, because you've spoken a lot about those things mm-hmm. in other places, and I—I'm—I'm I'm more interested in you as a person, and I would encourage people to seek out any of the million other interviews you've done to find mm. out about those things. But those are big parts of who you've been um, and who you continue to be. So I just mentioned that those exist, but I just want to ask you finally: you're in a situation where. I could imagine a person with less character might find it easy to just be at where you are. Mm. And yet you keep pushing yourself. You're, mm-hmm. you keep reaching for what the next thing is. And I can understand from talking to you why you do it. Mm. But what I seems more difficult to me is how you actually do it because you have a such an incredibly busy life. How do you actually find the time to reach for that next thing to, to kind of push yourself in that new direction? Um, I'm I'm not really sure. Um, I've I'm I've always been impatient, and and I think that that served me and has also hindered me. Um, um I, I push myself really hard, and I think anybody that that knows me, um, understands that, and they would agree with me on that. Um, I, I'm not a perfectionist, um, but there's something in there that really drives me, you know, that, that I, I like things to be correct. Like if I'm playing a piece of music, I want it to be right. You know, I want the melody to be right. I want the articulation to be right. Um, but I also want, I want that community around me also. I want people to be bringing themselves to it. And I, and, and I sort of, I demand a lot of the people I play with, but I don't demand nearly as much out of them as I demand out of myself. And, uh, um, so I, I think that it just sort of naturally occurs. You know, the whole idea with the mutet is it comes from the word mutation and that things continually have to evolve and change and mutate in order to not get stagnant. And, uh, um, that's one thing for me is I, I don't think that I could play music if it was stagnant. Um, for me, I have to grow, I have to evolve, and I have to recognize that, that, you know, every moment is different than the moment before it or the moment that comes after it. Um, so I think that, that musically, uh, certain things I listen to, certain things that I gravitate towards, um, it's always changing. Every one of my records is, is very different. Um, I try to play differently on solos. I try to find different ways through things. And um, look, everybody has their stock licks that they that they go back to. But it's like I, I continually think, how can I break out of this? How can I break out of this? And um, so I don't know. It's just it's a very sort of personal search. And and uh, um, you know, I don't expect. I don't think that I, I work as hard as some people, but I certainly think that I work harder than a lot. Um, so I just think it's up to everybody. I mean, you're going to be as good as you want to be and you're going to work on the things that you want to work on. And if you're not working on them, chances are pretty good that they're not that important to you. And, uh, so I, I think part of it for me is being honest with myself about that. Um, and, and really looking at what I consider to be my strengths and weaknesses. And it's up to me to work on my weaknesses. The strengths are going to continue to get better regardless of what I do. But the weaknesses, that's, that's what I think really defines somebody in their life. Um, and how do you overcome those things? How do you work within those parameters? How do you work with your own weaknesses to sort of become, to make them become your strengths uh, and to use them to your advantage? And, uh, and, and I really feel that I'm the player I am today because of my weaknesses rather than my strengths. So there's a new Mutet album on the way in September. Do folks have a chance to see the Mutet on the road coming up soon? We'll be out in August um, for about 10 days. i got Future Man playing drums, uh, Felix Pastorius on bass, Bill Fanning on uh, trumpet and what we call Space Trumpet, and uh, Chris Walters on uh, keyboards. And uh, you can check it out um, uh, at jeffcoffin.com. The tour schedule will be up there. 
uh, and that'll be during the time that I'm off with Dave Matthews. Another uh, Dave Matthews record coming out in September also. So there's a lot of, a lot of good music that's about to hit, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited about it, man. That's great. Really excited. Yeah. My guest is Jeff Kaufman. Uh, thanks so much for having me in your home and for My being pleasure. on the show. Yeah, thanks. Come over anytime. Thank you. <laughs> Be careful what you offer. <laughs> That's music from Jeff Coffin and the Mutet. Don't forget, they're at Blues Alley in Washington, D.C., starting tomorrow, August 10th through August 12th. And then in Ohio, Illinois, Utah, and Missouri. So please check out Jeff's site at jeffcoffin.com for more information about that tour. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi. You can follow me online on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can read the tour diaries at jasoncrane.org. You can become a member of the show at thejazzsession.com slash join and support the tour at thejazzsession.com slash tour. The official tour kicks off again on Labor Day weekend at the Detroit Jazz Festival and then heads west from there. And also, I'm looking for a place to stay in New York City for most of the rest of August, starting uh, Monday the 13th. So if you've got a place that you think you might be able to put me up for a little while, or know of someone who needs some house-sitting or something like that, please let me know at jason at thejazzsession.com. Thanks so much for listening. Now get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.